you brought a Bible with you or if you have it on your device, I would ask that you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. That'll be our New Testament reading. God's inerrant, infallible word, and I trust you'll see the connection it might have to our considerations in Leviticus 2. But first, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, God's word for his people. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing, meaning Jesus, along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now let's look at Leviticus 2, please. You'll see it printed for you there in page 5 of your bulletin. All 16 verses of chapter 2 of Leviticus. Again, God's word for his people this morning. Inerrant and infallible. God says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is most holy part of the Lord's food offering. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made a fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn as a memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. This is the word of God. Amen. Before I pray for us, kids, I want you to be listening for this word this morning. How many times are you going to hear the word worship? Worship is what you're counting because worship is what this chapter is about. Let me pray for us and we'll get after it. 
God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you that you were kind enough to preserve it for us. We ask now that you would open our ears and our eyes, that we might understand what you have here for us, that you would open our hearts to receive it. We trust the ministry of your spirit for these very things, so we ask him to work for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So the story of how God is making a way for his people to gather to him continues. And it really is a story. There's a reason God has inspired Moses to write down what he's written down, all the detail, and to put it in the order that he's put it in. Last week, we considered the burnt offering, the instructions that God gave to Moses on how his people should bring to him the burnt offering. Remember, it was a reminder, a fully immersive, experiential reminder with the sights and the sounds and the smells of what God must do if he is ever going to have fellowship with his people. There must be an unblemished sacrifice upon which our sin must be obliterated. This morning, there is a much different feel, an activity all important, but still very different, a grain offering. And before we get into it, I want us to notice the next offering that God instructs his people to bring. And if you've got your Bibles, you can look at it. It's going to be in chapter 3. It's going to be the peace offering. And the reason I bring that up is because with last week's chapter and the burnt offering and next week's chapter, the peace offering, we'll, we will see throughout our study in uh, Leviticus that this grain offering oftentimes accompanies both of those offerings. So you've got the burnt offering with the animal or the birds along with the grain offering, or you've got a peace offering along with a grain offering. And yet God determined to give the grain offering its own 16 verses, its own chapter. In fact, you don't see it in the bulletin there. It didn't make it, but verse 1 of chapter 2 is in quotes because this is God speaking. God speaking to Moses, continuing to give him specific instructions on how and why his people might approach him with this grain offering. And again, as I mentioned at the very beginning, let's not forget, this is God's people worshiping God at God's direction and God's instruction and God's invitation. God is saying, approach me. I want you to come near, and this is how. So it's worship that will provide our two parts this morning. First, we'll consider work as worship, work as worship, and then second, worship as a way to remember. Those will just be our two parts, and we're not going to divide the passage in half. We're going to kind of cover it together. But work as worship, and then worship as a way to remember. So what's a common everyday food item you most likely have in your house right now? I think most of us probably have bread, some sort of bread. Gluten-free bread, buns, tortillas, bagels, something. I looked this morning before I came up. We have three kinds of bread, and we keep ours in the fridge. We have tortillas, we have bagels, and then we just have regular old loaf. So I know if I want a sandwich or I want a bagel and cream cheese or I want a taco, I know to go to the fridge, take whatever kind of bread I need out of the package and make what it is I need to make. Bread or grain-based food was more of a staple for the people that we read about here in Leviticus 2 than it is for us. But if they wanted it, they had to make it. But they had to make it in a very long process. They had to plant and then they had to grow, and then they had to harvest, and then they had to winnow, then they had to crush, then they had to prep, then they had to bake, just so they could have bread. A lot of work over a long period of time, and God decided to give an entire chapter, or 16 verses, on what his people must do in order to approach him with this staple, grain, 
Part of why this might be the case is because bread is a very significant staple in the Bible. We see it every week here at the table when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus said that his body was broken like the bread that we break here. Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life in the Gospel of John. Bread is very significant in the Bible. And as a quick aside, notice just in the first two chapters of Leviticus, God is addressing his people in the midst of their very important and necessary life that they live. As they raised their bulls and their sheep and their goats, as they planted and harvested these things that they must do in order to survive, God is embedding himself in all of it. So let's consider the instructions God gives in prepping the grain his people are to bring him as an act of worship. First, in verses 1 through 3, God speaks to the fine flour that will be offered to him. This fine flour means it was the very best of the best that those bringing to him had to offer. And God asked them to add to that this perfumed and expensive spice called frankincense. Then in verses 4 through 10, God gives instruction on loaves of grain, these that are baked, and even the different ways that his people may choose to bake them. Whether in an oven or in a griddle or in a pan, God instructs the one making the offering on the ways in which he is to prepare those loaves, given those three different kinds of ways to bake it. In verses 14 through 16, God addresses the issue of the first fruits. Fresh ears, he says, roasted and offered with the spice of frankincense after being crushed. Now, part of what I want, to see, what I want us to see in chapter 2 here is in all this variety, and in all of this specificity that God is speaking to Moses and God by his spirit has preserved for us, he's revealing himself to be a God of detail. This was not about approaching God in worship with a haphazard bag of grain or a swiftly put together loaf of bread. God is asking his people as they prepare to come to him in worship to be intentional and deliberate, to even think very specifically how they're going to prepare this offering for him. Remember, this is God giving this instruction to Moses so that his people would know how to approach him. This is before they even get there for the formal act of worship. This is pregame. This is preparing themselves to worship. And their prayer for worship was every bit as important as bringing the offering of worship. What was apparent to those who were preparing and approaching God in the way he instructed them, and this is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, it was apparent to those worshipers that all that they had, they had because God had given it to them. Even the most basic of items, like grain, bread. Certainly, as they planted the seed, tended to their crops, harvested, prepared grain for their family and for this offering, the principle being practiced by them was God provides. He has given them this, their daily bread. And it's all from the hand of God. So this act of worship, this act of prepping for worship, was God's people returning to God what God had already given them in the first place. And as we saw last week, those offering the grain to bring to him were to bring the best that they had, not the leftovers. So it's this principle that's at work, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. God provides. And this principle has the added benefit of protecting his people from some sort of a entitlement mentality. Look at what I planted. Look at what I harvested. Look at what I've grown. Look at my bumper crop of grain this year. What God is trying to impress upon those who want to bring to him this grain offering to worship him is that God has provided this for him. 
in them. And this principle of God provides also brings with it this crucially important second benefit that must be the heart at the heart of every worshiper. It is this sense of gratitude. So understanding and knowing that God provides all that we bring to him and being grateful that he will receive us and it, you've got dependence and gratitude, two necessary components if we're going to bring our worship in a right way to the God who's going to receive us. Just think of these two benefits, recognizing all we have that have come from the hand of God. Even our work to prepare for him this grain offering is because God sustains and provides, accompanied by then a heart of gratitude from the one who's bringing it. Thank you, God, for all that you've given to me. Here's a portion of that which you've given me back to you. Is that not the heart of worship? All I have, all I have become, all I hope to be, all of it is from the hand of a gracious, merciful God. Understanding that at its core will compel you to have a heart of worship. And notice how it cuts against the grain of success in our culture. Lizzie and I uh, watch House Hunters a good bit because we fully embrace being empty nesters. And we watched a couple of episodes recently, and, and they're not one right after the, you know, it's like they're on the DVR, so we just go from one to the next endlessly because we're boring people. But there are these two episodes. It was one right after the other. And one man in the first one said that he wanted a particular house in order to show the world that he finally made it. And immediately, the next 25-minute episode, the other man said, that he wanted this particular kind of house so that he could show all who drove up to his driveway that he'd become successful. This is kind of the default heart posture for all of us. It's this prideful posturing. Look at what I've done. Look at how I am able to live. What God is calling his people to here is to respond to him with a dependent, grateful worship, admitting that we are nothing apart from him. What God is instructing his people to do here in these very specific details is to recognize that he has provided all that they have and now they are to take all that he's given to him, use it and steward it in such a way and bring it to him dependently, humbly, with grateful hearts. All of it is a gift from God and the work to prepare and bring it is a posture of worship from humble, dependent people. In much the same way we saw last week where the Israelites seemed or would scan his livestock, looking for the very best that he could bring for the burnt offering. And he cared for it, and he watched over it, and he protected it, and he fed it until it was time to take it and sacrifice it to God. So as that Israelite looked at his livestock, there was always that ultimate purpose for which he was raising that particular goat or sheep or bull. So too here, this grain offering was God's call for his people to be intentional and deliberate in their work in the field their work in their kitchen, and their work in worshiping him. Notice, too, how when brought, some of what was offered was placed on the altar to God, while the rest was set apart for the priest. You see that explicitly there in verse 3 and again in verse 10. Look at how it's stated exactly the same way in both verses, verse 3 and verse 10. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Even here, God is specific in detail. This is God's instruction to make sure that his servants, the priests, were cared for by those who were coming to worship God with their grain offering. God provided the grain to the worshipers, and God is now saying to the worshipers, you must provide 
a portion to my servants, the priests. And what this is about, most likely, is when the priest entered the sanctuary to offer up the part that was going to be offered to God, it was in that room there next to the altar that they were going to eat their portion. This is why it's called the most holy part of the Lord's offering. It was a sanctified, set-apart meal for God's servant, the priest. And then look there at verses 11 through 13. God tells Moses a couple of prohibitions and then an important ingredient that's going to cover every part of this grain offering. First, he says, no leaven or yeast and no honey will be allowed in the grain offering. Nobody's real sure about why God says that and why he preserved it for us, but most people guess that the leaven or the yeast and the honey would have corrupted this very fine flour, and there was to be no corruption of that sort offered there on the altar. God says, you may bring these things to me as a first fruits, but you may not bring it on the altar, and it will not be an aroma pleasing to me, but you certainly may bring it. But most interestingly is the requirement of salt, beginning there in verse 13. You could hear the repetition as I read it, couldn't you? Let me do it again. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And there in the middle of verse 13, God gives us a little bit more detail. He refers to this salt as being the salt of the covenant with your God. Now, there are a few instances later in the Old Testament where salt signified God's eternal covenant with his people. In fact, one commentator said about this particular passage, what God is doing here for those he's calling to worship him is he's having them put salt in their grain offerings because salt will not burn and salt will not decay. This commentator is saying the salt here is communicating to the one bringing the offering, the one who's coming to worship, that God is saying, here's my relationship with you, my covenant of salt with you. I've got you. Nothing is going to destroy our relationship. It will not decay. It will not be burned away. So you see the intentional, deliberate kindness of this God, this one who's committed to gathering his people around him, this is who I am, he says, and this is what I'm committed to, he says, and I love you, and I sustain you, and I gift you all that you have, and now come to me with some and bring me your worship. What about our worship as a memorial? Finally, we noticed last week about the repetition of this phrase in chapter 1, pleasing aroma to the Lord. We also see it repeated here, but something else repeated here that's not repeated in chapter 1, we see in verse 2, 9, and 16. The priest has taken his share. We've already read that, a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Then the rest is placed on the altar as what, does God say there? A memorial portion. So what are we to make of this? I think it's important that we bore down a little bit because in my view, this is what gives purpose to the entire grain offering. What is a memorial? But the act of remembering, right? If you've had a loved one who has died, you attend a memorial service to remember that person. If you've been to D.C., you've seen the Lincoln Memorial. You remember him. There's a purpose in doing that sort of thing. But what's being memorialized or what are they asking to be remembered as they worship God in bringing this offering? This is when we go back to what I mentioned at the very beginning to see where God placed this chapter, this grain offering between the burnt offering and between the peace offering. I think this is where we are able to tease out what is being memorialized. This memorial portion is the act of asking God 
to remember his promises of mercy and grace, which is there in spades in the burnt offering, and his blessing of peace to his people, which we're going to consider next week in the peace offering. Mercy and grace and peace achieved through these acts of sacrifice and offerings. This is what we've seen in Leviticus so far and what we will see. So look at this, with salt being a part of each grain offering, and each grain offering called the memorial portion, God's people are remembering God's faithfulness, how they are secured to him forever. See the salt of the covenant to God, and also asking God then to remember how he has blessed them with grace and mercy and peace. This is oftentimes the heart of worship in the Bible. We see it in the Psalms. The psalmist asking God in prayer to remember his steadfastness, to remember his love, to remember his faithfulness, and on and on and on. You remember before we covered the Thessalonian letters, we were in Nehemiah, and you remember in Nehemiah in chapter 6 and following, how many times did Nehemiah pray, remember me, O God, according to your mercy? In each case, a memorial offering, a food offering, God tells us, is a pleasing aroma to him. So God's revealing to us here that it pleases him when his people remind him of his promises to them. When his people remind him that he is worthy of our trust. When his people remind him how faithful he has been to them. So this remembering, this memorial portion and the act of worshiping God with the grain offering is, I believe, one of the primary purposes that God has preserved chapter 2 for us and why he's given us this instruction here and why there is so much detail. Because we must remember who God is and what God has done if we're going to bring to him a heart of worship. And that's what we try to do here on Sunday mornings in our hymns. We take great care in choosing songs that promote the truth of the Bible. Our hymns are supposed to be solid theological lessons set to music. And notice how, more often than not, the truths we sing, we're remembering truths about God, remembering truths about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Just survey what we've sung this morning and what we're singing at the end of our service and pick out the truths of how God has revealed himself through the words of those hymns. These are our memorial portion, gratefully celebrating and worshiping the God who provides and sustains our every breath. So then we take from his word and we rehearse his promises and our call to worship. We take his word and rehearse his promises in the confession of sin and our promise that he gives us there. If the sermon is supposed to be anything at all, it should be a huge placard, a verbal billboard reminding us of who God is and what he's done for his people. And of course, the meal here. Jesus tells us, and we hear it every week, do this remembering me. This is immersed in memorial, but this meal is so much more than just a memorial. So notice how God has on purpose embedded himself in the day-to-day lives of his people in just the first two chapters of Leviticus. They couldn't go out and feed their livestock. They couldn't go out and plant or harvest or tend to their fields without remembering how God had provided it all and how they were looking forward to that day when they could bring him a portion of that which he's given to them. That means in some way they were preparing for worship and everything that they did. Planting, watering, feeding, caring for their livestock and fields. God designed it this way. God designed it so their lives were being meshed in a culture of worship. That was by God's design. Now imagine if you think about us. January 
31st in 2021 in Fort Worth. Imagine how this could reshape and reform our worship. If we had this kind of mindset, if our hearts were postured this way in everything that we did Monday through Sunday, in the way that we worked, the way that we rested, the way that we relaxed, the way that we drove, the way that we exercised, the way that we fellowshiped, how and when we ate, and who and how we loved the one in front of us, in what ways we were able to serve, all of it. Imagine if we, like God's people, embed in our hearts this sense of dependent, grateful worship in all that we do. Imagine if we saw every little task that was set before us on any given day, that that is provided to us by God, that he is giving us the air to breathe. He continues to allow our heart to pump blood through our system so that we can take that task that he's given to us and offer a portion of it up to him. At least in part and everything, we're giving thanks to him for what it is before us at any given moment. Then imagine multiple memorial portions being lifted to God throughout the day, that we're doing something that reminds us of his grace, of his mercy, of the peace that he's established with us because of Jesus. And with that gratitude, we begin to worship Monday through Sunday with these hearts that can't get over how much he has loved us. So in these first two chapters, we've noticed, I hope, these very specific instructions on sacrifices and offerings, and all of it is worship. And how these acts of worship have the power to influence and seep into the daily lives of God's people. That's because God designed it that way. It's there because it's by God's design. So look what God's doing. He's taking his people here in Leviticus. And he's giving them a Godward vision for all that they do. This daily Godward vision as they plant and as they care and tend to their stock. This one who granted all that they have. This God who sustains them in order to do what it is all that they're doing. And this God who has promised them his forever faithfulness. Although we don't have to bring our animals or grain to a priest to offer them to God. Everything that we see in Leviticus 2 is still true. Everything we saw in Leviticus 1 is still true. So pray that by the Spirit you can have your hearts and minds fixed on these truths. Every single day. Even moment by moment. So that every single day, moment by moment, there is a cast of worship to what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. And imagine if that begins to happen to each one of us here at Grace Community. Imagine the explosion of praise when we enter this place on Sunday morning. When we see the evidence of God's grace in the face of every one of our brothers and sisters. And we know that we've been connecting to God on that worship level because of the way that we've gone about our week. And then we gather and we hear each other's voices. And we remember again who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. And we trust that the Spirit is enabling that kind of worship. Imagine the explosion of praise in a place like this. May God make that happen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you continue to drive home to us the lessons that were probably a lot more clear to the people in Leviticus than they are at first glance to us. Make them clear, we pray so that we can worship you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.